Hello everyone, welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, it all goes round again, and here I am once more on a new phase of the journey to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King, to determine whether or not King deserves his reputation for having an inability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast will be to examine the climax, falling action, and resolution of the endings to each of his novels and break it down by characters, themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I'll also weigh in on whether or not I happen to like the ending. And today, we're talking about the ending of Dr. Sleep. But first, I want to get to um, some listener emails, because I can't do it without you guys. So if at any point you want to write in about any of the endings that we have discussed so far, if you want to write about the ending of Dr. Sleep, if you want to talk about Dr. Sleep in general, you want to talk about what you liked about Dr. Sleep, what you liked about Dr. Sleep, Sleep the movie, um, or anything else that is on your mind regarding all things Stephen King, write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. So we have Bob who writes, I'm a longtime King fan, started uh, with a talisman in 1988 when I was 18, and I'm also a teacher. I work at a local coin shop part-time. As such, I always perk up when I see coinage inconsistencies. I've seen a few in King's works, but the most glaring is in 1122.63. The yellow card man is to be given a half dollar. Who's on the half? Kennedy. In the 50s, the halves would have borne the portrait of Franklin. Further, the coins would have been silver, not the copper nickel we have now. I know I'm being a coin nerd, but I figured if you have an inconsistency file, you could make an addition to it. Have a great day. And when can respect a review of Billy Summers? Waiting for the New England fall, Bob. Um, so, Bob, uh, you're not going to get a in-depth Billy Summers review. Uh, I was very uncharitable in my um, examination of Billy Summers. I just thought that the book was kind of a joke. Oh, that's so harsh. Um, I don't know. Maybe I just wasn't in the right um, space for Billy Summers. Um, but I... I I just, I didn't like it. (laughs) Um, But what I did like is this email, um, and the specificity of the coins is not something that I would have ever caught onto, so I really appreciate you taking the time to share your expertise for something I never would have noticed. I think that that that's great, and that cracked me up when I read it. So thank you for sharing. Uh, Tim writes, Dear Constant Reader, I'm a longtime listener, first-time writer, I write first to say thank you for so many things, to share a little bit about my own Stephen King journey, and to wish you long days and pleasant nights. So first, my genuine thanks. Thank you for the many hours of entertainment about and engagement with the Stephen King books that I love and have meant so much to me. I've listened to every single one of your episodes and wish there was more. I'm glad that you're still working your way through the endings and producing new content on a semi-regular basis. Thank you for sharing not just your thoughts about the master of horror, but the also wider world of horror. I love your Joe Hill episodes, and I've read all of Joe's books and one of Owen's. But regarding the other authors, thank you most of all for your Pine Deep episodes and introducing me to Jonathan Mayberry. I devoured the Pine Deep trilogy and then fell in love with all things Joe Ledger. My little white mini schnauzer is a huge fan of ghosts and loves to cuddle next to me anytime I read Joe Ledger. Speaking of pups, my condolences on the loss of your furry co-hosts. I cried during the episodes you spoke of their loss, and I'm glad that there is a new furry co-host in your house. Um... So, uh, Tim, thank you uh, so much for the, the condolences. Um, when I read these, it's you know been a while now, but whenever I get a new email, um, 
it just it strikes me just how lucky I was and and to have had them and how fortunate they were that they were able to have been appreciated and loved by people that uh, they never had a chance to meet. Um, so Tim continues, I was introduced to Stephen King by my dad. I remember him sitting out in the backyard and iced tea nearby reading Stephen King for hours in the sun. The covers of those books terrified me. From Cujo to Skeleton Key to It, I stayed far away from King as I could until the year we moved from Southern California to Arizona. It was the summer between junior high and my freshman year of high school, which is a terrible time to move to a new school in a different state. I was lonely and depressed. My dad suggested a stack of books. Included in the stack was the then-recently released complete and uncut version of The Stand. I couldn't put it down until, spoiler alert for The Stand, everybody, Nick Andros died. At that point, I threw the book across my room in anger and disgust, and swore I wouldn't finish the book or ever read Stephen King again. I'm going to interject myself. Uh, uh, so, Tim, you and I had very similar experiences with that point in in the book. Um, yeah, it's funny how you just you, you glom on to a particular character. Um, I don't know if I if I ever quite felt as strongly if I feel as strongly about characters um, at this stage in my life as I did when I was reading. Stephen King around that time that I would feel that strongly about the death of a character. Anyway, uh, so Tim continues. Uh, 30 minutes later, I was back in my room to stand in hand and finish the book later that same night. I immediately read the original release of The Stand, followed by just about every other King book on my dad's shelf. I couldn't bring myself to read Cujo, though. That cover was just too damn scary. I especially enjoyed reading the Castle Rock books, save the one that I mentioned, Leading up to needful things. Man, I loved that book. King really helped me overcome my depression that summer. I might even go so far as to say he saved my life. After high school, King became less of an obsession and more of an occasional read. I remember picking up Everything's Eventual, 112263, Under the Dome, and Revival. But I missed so many of his late 1990s and early to mid-2000s books. I really got back into King and discovered your podcast when the news broke about the Dark Tower movie. Man, what a disappointment that was, but still glad they made it, or I might not have finished the King canon or met you through your podcast. I had read the first three Dark Tower novels, but have never picked up, never picked back up with Wizard and Glass. So I picked up The Gunslinger and restarted my journey with Roland and his quartet to the tower. This time I was much more clued into the Man in Black and to the appearance of RF in the conclusion of The Wastelands. Upon reading Wizard in Glass, I was delightfully surprised at the quartet's journey through a world that had been touched by Captain Trips. It also sparked my interest in better understanding how the Dark Tower books touch King's other works. But I needed some help with that understanding and went in search of a guide. That search led me to you. You were my guide as I reread the complete Dark Tower books, and then as I went back, I reread those books that were most obviously Tower adjacent The Talisman, Black House, Insomnia, It, Eyes of the Dragon, Hearts in Atlantis, etc. When I was done with those novels, I had so many of your podcasts untouched that I decided it was, it was to go back and just read all of the King novels that I had missed over the years. I left Cujo for last, and it was terrifying. <clears throat> My favorites were Duma Key, Joyland, The Outsider, Desperation, The Regulators, and Full Dark, No Stars. Now I await the release of Fairy Tale and Holly. Oh, and I wait, I'm waiting for the next Joe Ledger Rogue Team International book, which I believe is titled Discord. <clears throat> Can't wait. For now, I'm reading the Final Girls Support Group at your recommendation, and I'm really enjoying it. 
I also recently finished Kill Creek and Devolution, which were both fan-freaking-tastic. Thanks for those recommendations, too. Okay, I've taken up of your time, enough of your time. So finally, from my home in Arizona, I wish you long days and pleasant nights. Tim, Tim, thank you so much for writing in. Um, this was a, a great slice of life and understanding of, of what Stephen King means to you. And I think that emails like this are, are really important. Um, I, was, I was thinking recently about this specifically, about, you know, for a lot of people... Um, you know, authors, you know, they, they, they provide, uh, you know, a, a product that, you know, we purchase and spend our time, um, you know, devouring or reading at our leisure, and it, it doesn't really go on much further than that. Um, but there's just something different about Stephen King and the relationship that he's built with us. Uh, you know, I've never met Stephen King. I've never interviewed Stephen King. Um, and, and I, but I feel on some level because of the way in which he has crafted his relationship with his constant readers, I do feel like I know him. At the very least, I know how he has impacted me personally. Um, and I, I love that there are so many of you out there that share that um, in your own personal ways, in your own unique ways. But it's there because of the power and potency of his storytelling abilities. And I think that that in of itself more than anything else, is a, a true testament to this author that we all love. And uh, I'm glad to hear that uh, you really enjoyed the Pine Deep books. Um, I couldn't find my copies, so I just ordered um, some fresh ones because I, I want my wife to, to read them this, uh, this October season. Um, Man, those are good. And I read the first Joe Ledger novel. I haven't read the other ones, though, so that, I'm glad that I have a, a bunch of books um, waiting in the queue uh, to, to be able, if I ever wanted, to get back into the, the world of, of Joe Ledger. Um, but it was cool uh, that Jonathan Madbury, for anyone that read the, the Pine Deep trilogy, he recently returned to Pine Deep um, last year or the year before with Ink, um, and that was enjoyable to, to be able to, to go back uh, to, to that town and those characters. It was really, really cool. Um, yeah, and for anyone that hasn't read the survival, uh, the uh, Final Girls support group, um, I strongly recommend it. That's the one by um, Grady Hendrix. Um, there's another Final Girls book out there. I can't remember the author's name, but I would recommend the Final Girls support group. Um, and speaking of Grady Hendrix, uh, he just released a couple other ones. Um, he has released uh, How to Sell a Haunted House that came out this year. And then a couple years ago, I, I, I hadn't known it had been published. I didn't know anything about it until my daughter picked it up off of the shelf um, and gave it to me. Um, but it was uh, We Sell Our Souls, I believe it's called, or We Sold Our Souls. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think that he he really does a bad book i i like Grady, Grady hendrix um but I, I definitely like we sold our souls that was uh if you like if you like rock and roll um actually this is a a good pairing i would say with a heart-shaped box i think that that is a a good if this was like a double feature um so whatever a, a, the a uh a, a a literary version of a double feature is I think that uh, We Sold Our Souls pairs very well with Heart Shaped Box if that means anything to you um, and currently like I said I'm reading uh, God in the Shed 
um, and I will let everyone know how, how that turns out, but I'm enjoying it so far. Um, okay, so thank you, Tim. Thank you for writing in. And uh, now we have a letter from Quinn, and I just want to um, uh, put out that the spoiler alert for the Gwendy books um, and the, the, the Dark Tower um, book seven, um, uh, the Dark Tower book seven. So spoiler alert, if you have not, you know, don't lick my computer, um, if you haven't finished uh, those series yet. Okay, Quinn writes, Dear Mr. Stephen Kinkass, I got a chance to read the final two Gwendy books and I want to talk about Richard Ferris. The ideas I present are merely food for thought. I don't necessarily believe them, but I vibe with them strongly. I think that maybe everyone in King's literary multiverse is on a redemptive path, even the villains. So again, spoiler alert for The Dark Tower, book seven, The Dark Tower. Susanna ascended to a higher plane with Eddie and Jake in The Dark Tower 7 because she finally turned away from Roland's obsessive quest while Roland was damned to repeat his past mistakes until he got them right. But it's clear that Roland's soul has been slowly choosing compassion over time and that he will break the cycle eventually. I think the clearing at the end of the path that King writes about is a nirvana that characters ascend to once they've reincarnated enough times to become the best versions of themselves. Randall Flagg isn't evil. He's just a low vibrational version of himself every time we've seen him so far. I don't know what he's been up to after Mordred killed him, if I had to guess, I'd say he's been doing some soul-searching because Richard Ferris, while creepy and unsettling and chaotic at times, is a much better man than Randall Flagg from The Stand. How cool would it be if Randall Flagg and Roland Deschain met in the clearing at the end of the path, not as enemies, but as brothers? Long days and pleasant nights. Quinn. P.S. The best part of this theory is that, if correct, it proves that Mother lied. Mother, I assume being the, um, the um, ant creature from Revival. Okay, um, Quinn, that's a, I need to dwell on that a little bit more. Um, I never would have thought of that. Um, and in fact, we should have at some point a conversation about King's multiverse. Um, because right now in pop culture, the multiverse is in. It is, um, actually, it's in to the point where it's, it's starting to, to lose its, 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 its shine. Um, it's the shine. Um, so to speak, but with the Flash uh, underperforming at the box office, the latest phase of um, Marvel not um, really gaining much traction in the way of pop culture dominance. Um, these are <coughs> multiversal-based uh, stories, um, but with you know everything everywhere all at once, um, the the Flash on. Um, CW, uh, you know, multiverse is a concept that is now just understood by um, by audiences, uh, general audiences, and it's it's interesting that King, you know, he didn't create the multiverse. I mean, the multiverse, the concept of it has been around for a long time, you know, and, and King grew up reading comic books. Um, he grew up reading, uh, you know, you know, DC Comics and DC Comics. I apologize, guys. DC Comics is, um, you know, well known for its multiverse. And Crisis on Infinite Earths was a, a massive uh, um, event uh, in in the eighties. Um, so. It's just really interesting that uh, right now we're doing a lot of talking about the multiverse. Um, but Stephen King, with the Dark Tower saga, 
he had embedded the importance of the multiverse uh, in such a distinct way um, long before it was popularized in, um, in our pop culture right now. Okay, so let's, uh, you know, speaking of talking, let's start talking about Dr. Sleep, specifically the ending of Dr. Sleep. And in order to get there, um, let's read the Wikipedia summary so that we have a basis of understanding when we start talking about the ending. So following the ending of The Shining, after receiving a settlement from the owners of the Overlook Hotel, Danny Torrance remains psychologically traumatized as his mother, Wendy, slowly recovers from her injuries. The two are living in Florida, but angry ghosts from the Overlook, including Mrs. Massey, the woman from Room 217, still want to find Danny and eventually consume his phenomenal shining power. Dick Holleran, the Overlook's former chef, teaches Danny to create mental lockboxes to contain the ghosts, including that of former Overlook owner Doris, uh, Horace Derwent. As an adult, Danny, now going by Dan, takes up his father's legacy of anger and alcoholism. Dan spends years drifting across the United States, but he eventually makes his way to New Hampshire and decides to give up drinking. He settles in the small town of Fraser on a psychic hunch, working first for the Fraser Municipal Department and then at the local hospice and attending Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. His psychic abilities, long suppressed by his drinking, reemerge and allow him to provide comfort to his dying patients. Aided by a cat, Azzy, that can sense when someone is about to die, Dan acquires the nickname Dr. Sleep. In the meantime, Abra Stone, a baby born in 2001, begins to manifest psychic powers of her own when she seemingly predicts the 9-11 attacks. She slowly and unintentionally establishes a telepathic bond with Dan through Tony, Dan's childhood imaginary friend. As she grows, the contact becomes more conscious and voluntary, and her shining grows stronger than even his. One night, Abra psychically witnesses the ritual torture and murder of a young boy, Bradley Trevor, by the True Knot, a group of quasi-immortal nomads who possess their own psychic abilities. The True Knot members wander across the United States and periodically feed on steam, a psychic essence produced when people who possess the Shining die in pain. They refer to their victims as rubes. The True Knot's leader, Rose the Hat, becomes aware of Abra's existence and formulates a plan to kidnap Abra and keep her alive, making her produce a limitless supply of steam. The True Knot begin to die off from measles contracted from Bradley Trevor. They believe that Abra's steam can cure them. Abra asks for Dan's help, and he reveals his connection with Abra to her father, David, and their family, Dr. John Dalton. Though angry and skeptical, David agrees to go along with Dan's plan to save Abra. With the help of Billy Freeman, a friend of Dan, they foil and kill a raiding party led by Crow Daddy, Rose's second-in-command. However, Dan realizes that Rose will relentlessly hunt Abra for revenge. He visits Abra's great-grandmother, Conchetta, who is dying of cancer at the Fraser Hospital Hospice, and telepathically learns from her that he and Abra's mother, Lucy, are half-siblings with the same father, Jack Torrance. As Conchetta dies, Dan takes her diseased steam into himself. Meanwhile, dissension among the True Knot, along with Rose's obsession with Abra, leads to the group splitting up, leaving Rose with even fewer followers. Following another kidnapping attempt that Abra foils with Dan's telepathic help, she baits Rose into confronting her at the location where the Overlook Hotel once stood in the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, now home to a campsite owned by the True Knot. Dan and Billy travel to the site while Abra helps them by using her astral projection. Lying in wait, Dan releases the steam collected from Conchetta 
to the remaining group of the True Knot members, killing all of them. He also frees the ghost of Horace Derwent to kill the last member, Silent Sari, waiting to ambush him and Abra, and the two fight Rose in a long psychic struggle. With help from Billy and the ghost of Dan's father, Jack Torrance, they push Rose off an observation platform so she falls to the ground, breaking her neck and dying. Before leaving the campsite, Dan sees his father wave goodbye, having finally found peace. In the epilogue, Dan celebrates 15 years of sobriety and attends Abra's 15th birthday party. He tells her about the patterns of alcoholism and violent behavior that run in his family and warns her not to repeat them by starting to drink or submitting to rage. Abra agrees that she will behave, but before they can finish the conversation, Dan is called back to his hospice, where he comforts a dying colleague who had antagonized him in the past. So let's talk about the ending. When we talk about the ending, we need to figure out exactly where we're going to start talking about. So um, the climax, I believe, begins with the showdown um, with his ghosts, both old and new, where the Overlook used to be. Right, so that confrontation, the final confrontation with the true knot um, taking place at the, the, the ghost of the Overlook. The following action, Dan attends Abra's 15th birthday party. Um, his family is now healed and whole. And the resolution, um, Dan returns to hospice. Okay, so the criteria for a good ending. Does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that is consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes from the book? Um, yes, and this is what makes it a, uh, such a solid, important sequel. Um, it, 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 it wraps up and provides appropriate conclusions to the, the characters as they exist, not just in Dr. Sleep, but in The Shining as well, and the characters of The Shining too. So that's what's really important about Dr. Sleep. So famously, um, famously in context of this podcast, you know, I've talked about how when I first read uh, Dr. Sleep, I didn't like it that much. But then I went back and I reread it and I was struck at how powerful this book is when not necessarily when you compare it to The Shining, but when you contextualize it with The Shining. So that it's not necessarily um, it is a sequel. It's an extension. It is the shadow to The Shining. As I said before, it zigs where The Shining zags. It is its opposite as much as it's its twinner and its continuation. Um, and the reason why it is such a strong book in its own right is because it does the opposite things that The Shining does um, so well. Um, so if you want, you know, more uh, analysis of of the the of Doctor Sleep as a whole, make sure that you go and you listen to my my review of Doctor Sleep. But it just it strikes me so much that you don't get the power of this book obviously un, un, unless you um you know you take into account the events of the shining and the events of the characters within the shining so this is the rise of the torrance family the shining depicted the fall um but danny is able to build it up again as dan so he has beaten his alcoholism he has beaten literally the the the, the manifestation of addiction the tr the true knot he has formed bonds with his new family so danny has redeemed his family um and he has redeemed himself you know so the, the the first book the shining it was about the it was about the past 
It was all about the past. It's about, you know, Jack's past. It's about the Overlook's past. The past is haunting the present. And what happens by the end of Dr. Sleep is with his relationship with Abra, um, you know, he's now looking into the future of what his family is. And it's a bright future, whereas the way that it was depicted in The Shining, it is a, a, a family that is, you know, being haunted by the ghosts of this um, of this hotel, but it's being haunted by the, the, the ghosts of the, the father's past um, and how those um, genetic ghosts, how those uh, familial ghosts have manifested themselves into this alcoholism. And so he is possessed by his own rage and failures and weakness um, and selfishness. And um, so all of that is, is beaten um, in uh, Dr. Sleep by Danny. Um, and so he's weaponized his trauma quite literally and allows the past to be a part of himself, but he has had enough strength to not let it overcome him. So yes, cl- yes, completely. This is a very cathartic book for the character. Um, does it successfully wrap up the plot? Specifically, do the events build upon one another with consistency? Yes. Um, the the true not are the villains of the book. They are the antagonists. They're getting in the way, um, and they are soundly defeated um, through a combination of you know character based moments and some fan service in there with Jack Torrance coming in and, and saving his son um, for for good this time. Does the conclusion serve the theme, symbolism, and motifs? Um, yeah, I mean yes. I mean as I just talked about when I was talking about the characters. He makes peace with the ghost of his father, okay, and that serves as just the the, the resolution, and the the, themolo- uh, the, the thematic, um, you know, putting the the ghost to rest of the alcoholism, of the guilt, of the trauma and the pain and everything. Um, you know, it, he has made peace literally with the ghost of his father and what, you know, the the trauma that his father had inflicted upon him. Um, you know, in, in The Shining and that has haunted him throughout his life, he has been able to put that to rest um, by literally making peace with the ghost of Jack Torrance himself. And he's conquered his addiction through the physical extermination of the personification of the addiction itself, the villains of this novel, the true not. So yes, from a symbolic standpoint, like I talked about with the future of the Torrance family being Abra, um, I, I, I believe that the, the, the novel has concluded the theme, symbolism, and motifs. What is the most famous scene in the novel, and does it appear in the conclusion? Um, I'd say it's probably the death of uh, Tradley, Bradley Trevor, um, which was brought to horrific life um, in the movie. And are there any other factors that we need to consider? Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, th- this was a, a challenging book for Stephen King to, to write. I imagine, I should say, or, or a challenging book to put out there. Um, because the, the sequel is long considered to be one of his scariest books. The, the Shining has such reverence um, in our culture, not just for you know, Stephen King, uh, for, for him putting out the literary version of it, but for Stanley Kubrick to 
have adapted it and having that adaptation within Stephen King fandom be uh, so contentious. You either are, you know, you come down on, on one side or the other, it seems, if you're a Stephen King fan. Um, but the thing with with um, the the Shining, it's it's not just Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. It's not only you know one of the the best horror movies ever made. It's not just one of the best Stephen King adaptations. It's just one of the best movies ever made. Um, you know, despite the the massive changes that that Kubrick had had made. So this is t- to put out Doctor Sleep, and for Doctor Sleep to be so radically different from both King's original book and the, um, the, the Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, which cast such a massive legacy um, to put out a sequel. You are, anytime you do that, you are tempering with, with, with forces and um, you, you, you are tempting whether or not you will tarnish the legacy that exists and so what's great about dr sleep is that it complements the shining and that it allows the shining to complement dr sleep um it is a a a perfect partner for the shining um and then the movie came out dr sleep and again for mike flanagan these are massive shoes to fill not only are you stepping into the shoes of stephen king um and he flanagan has proven that he has been able to um adapt stephen king in a very specific way that most people fail to do so he is able to get to the spirit of stephen king in ways that i don't know if any other filmmaker has been able to do um to do so so he's he has done it with with gerald's game he has done it with dr sleep he has invoked the spirit of stephen king if not in if not adapting stephen king with midnight mass um and fingers crossed, God, you know, I really hope that this turns out, but he has been tapped to, you know, show run, um, you know, the, the dark tower on Amazon. I hope this works out because if he can't do it, then no one's going to be able to do it. And he gets it. And, you know, I, I think that us seeing his adaptations, it's only been the tip of the iceberg, but anyway, but you know, Flanagan, stepping into the cinematic version of Dr. Sleep again, talk about tarnishing legacy. He had the, the, the potential to tarnish the legacy established by Stanley Kubrick. And that's like hollowed ground, but he somehow managed to create an ending to the, the, the movie that honors both Stanley Kubrick and Stephen King in a way that I, that was unimaginable, but he did it. He pulled it off and it was amazing. So I mean, this book and its cinematic counterpart are are both um, real uh, real gems. Uh, they they should not exist. They have no reason to be as good as they are, but they are. They're really good, and my estimation of both only grows um, with each passing year. Um, so I'm really really struck by the potency of Doctor Sleep, uh, and I'm I'm glad that the movie when it came out uh, shined some light on it um and i think that people were were able to reevaluate uh you know what king had done with uh with with his sequel so based on everything that we had talked about do i like the ending hell yeah i like the ending and is it a good ending 
from a character standpoint, yes. From a thematic standpoint, yes. From a plot standpoint, yes. It's a good ending. So this is where we're at. Um, I happen to like 39 out of 45 endings, and um, we've established that 38 out of 45 are good. So Stephen King is, is doing pretty good with these endings, guys. All right. Um, so... Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening as long as you have with this um, when we're talking about uh, Dr. Sleep. Um, and so I guess I'm just going to conclude. Um, if you want to write into Stephen Kingcast, um, to this podcast, just write into Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com um, and share all of your thoughts on Stephen King, on Dr. Sleep, on the multiverse, on, on whatever you want. Um, and then also if you have any spare time, uh, a review on iTunes would help me out greatly. So may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where I talk about Mr. Mercedes, the ending of Mr. Mercedes, where M O O N spells Stephen King cast.